Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, in our last podcast, I gave you an overview of Joseph Conrad's novel, Lord Jim. Now today, what I want to to do is I want to discuss the importance of the first four chapters of this emotionally complex work of fiction. And I have to admit that I'm actually liking this novel more and more. The more I read it, the more I study about it. And, uh, of course, um, I want you to do the same. And so so the, the thing that, that I think maybe I just want to talk a little bit overview about these chapters, and uh, it's really related to the structure of the book, and maybe the way you can put this together better for yourselves is in these first four chapters, essentially what Conrad is doing is he's talking about three different points in time. And so the first chapter, of course, we know Lord Jim, or Jim is a, uh, what they call a water clerk. Now, that actually is um, the, the most current job he had at the time. But when we get into the other chapters, we're going to go back somewhat in time to, to get caught up on why there's this inquiry. And so, so, in other words, actually what we're seeing now is what, what uh, is happening to Jim at that moment. So it's kind of like more present, but then we're going to go into the past to find out why he's a water clerk and not what he really wanted to do. So hopefully that makes it clear for you. And if it doesn't, just keep reading. <laughs> that was a joke. Sorry. All right. Now, the, the, it, when you get into Chapter 1, there, there really is some great writing here. And um, I know that uh, some people have complained to me that, that Joseph Conrad just seems like he goes on and on and on when he could say it in like three sentences. But really, there's a beauty to the writing, and it's almost poetic. And uh, it, it's almost – I can almost see that Conrad spent a lot of time as a boy, you know, reading these great heroic poems – uh, you know, and um, you know, in some ways, it, it's there, there's a lot of story and a lot of description in those poems as well, especially when you get into you know some of the Greek classics, the Greek classic poetry. But uh, in, in this chapter one, he starts out with this vivid physical description of Jim, and I'm just going to read a little bit to you. It says he was an inch, perhaps two under six feet. Powerfully built, and he had, and he advanced straight at you with a slight stoop of the shoulders, head forward, and a fixed from under stare, which made you think of a charging bull. So, so again, that, that's a that's a large description, and I don't know how many out there have ever been in front of a charging bull, but I have been around bulls, uh, you know, in the cow pasture, and uh, they do run at you, which is kind of scary. And so, so I think what uh, what Conrad is doing right away is is he's just showing us that that uh, here Jim he does really have a lot of leadership quality, and uh, you know if, if he's uh, somewhat aggressive, 
but he's also appears to be to be very very handsome. It says his voice was deep, loud, and his manner displayed a kind of dogged self-assertion which had nothing aggressive in it. And so, so here, obviously, Jim is very confident as well, and uh, uh, he has this dogged self-assertion. I mean, when he walked into a room, you would know Jim walked in the room. And, uh, you know, if, if, he, if you're around him, you're going to know that Jim's there, but that doesn't mean he was aggressive about it. He goes on to say, it seemed a necessity, and it was directed apparently as much at himself as at anybody else. And so, so remember now, we're seeing Jim after the one of the two major events of this book, and uh, we'll, we'll get into this uh, uh, in these chapters somewhat. But uh, uh, you know, so so here, there's kind of this mystery about Jim. There's something going on. And uh, of course, uh, you know, Conrad is not going to tell us directly what it is. Uh, but but ever the, er, whatever he's saying here, it is, you know, his self-assertion is there for a necessity. He goes on to say he was spotlessly neat, apparelled in immaculate white from shoes to hat, and in the various eastern ports where he got his living as a ship chandler's water clerk, he was very popular. And so, so in other words, this guy is capable and, uh, you know, the ship chandler, water clerk, um, you know, that's still a job today. I didn't know that. I got an online and done some research. And there are a lot of, of ships that they need the, uh, well, the, the water clerks. And, uh, of course, we have a lot more technology than they did back in the time of Conrad. But there are ships that, that come in and out of ports and they, they are, you know, uh, in big business and they have to keep their... Um, you know, cargo moving at a certain speed, and uh, you know they have all these men on the ship with them. They have to take care of them. They have to have food for them, and so so you know the uh, the water clerk um, is there to help fulfill their needs for the ship, especially for the food for the crews that's on that are on the ship. And in, in today's society, sometimes they fly things out by helicopter. Sometimes they fly it out when they're you know at sea, uh, you know on other ships. And then uh, sometimes when they come into a port, they only have so many hours at the port, so they call in ahead and everything's ready for them. And so, so it, it, it is, you know, an, an interesting job. Anyway, notice uh, he goes on in this chapter and he, he talks about the, the, the abilities of the water clerks. He said, and, and he's really referring back to, to Jim here, he says, a water clerk need not pass an examination in anything under the sun but he must have ability in the abstract and demonstrate it practically. His work consists in racing under sail, steamer oars against other water clerks for any ship about to anchor, greeting her captain cheerily, forcing upon him a card, the business card of the ship chandler, and on his first visit on shore, piloting him firmly without ostentation to a vast cavern-like shop which is full of things that are eaten and drunk on board ship, where you can get everything to make her seaworthy and beautiful, from a set of chain hooks for her cable to a book of gold leaf for the carvings of her stern. And so, so it's, I guess, uh, you know, at these ports, they had like their, their version of Walmart, <laughs> where you could get anything you needed. And uh, even if you needed to, to upgrade the gold leaf on the bow of the ship, you could buy the gold leaf. And so, so uh, you know, this is a different world from all of us landlubbers out here. 
Uh, you know, we, we don't know this world, but uh, obviously we know Conrad did and loved it. He, he loved being on the sea. And so, so one, one of the things that we know about him, Lord Jim, and what we're getting, uh, you know, educated about is that the captains of these ships loved him because he was so capable. At the very bottom of page one, it says, to the captain, he is faithful like a friend and attentive like a son with the patience of Job, the unselfish devotion of a woman and the, and the, uh, the jollity of a boon companion. Later on, the bill is sent in. It is beautiful and humane. It is a beautiful and humane occupation. And so, so we know that from what Conrad tells us here, that obviously um, Jim was a really good water clerk. And he goes on to say, therefore, good water clerks are scarce. When a water clerk who possesses ability in the abstract has also the advantage of having been brought up, uh, in, up to the sea, he is worth to his employer a lot of money and some humoring. Jim had always good wages and as much humoring as would have been brought the fidelity of a friend. So nevertheless, with black ingratitude, he would, grow, he would throw up the job suddenly and depart. So, so in other words, Jim always had good wages, but there was something about him. And, uh, uh, you know, he didn't have the fidelity, the fidelity that they wanted. And uh, uh, what he said is, is something would happen and, uh, you know, he would quit his job and he would just, you know, uh, turn on, I guess, the, the, you know, the owners of these uh, ports and these, the, these stores. So he goes on to say, nevertheless, with black ingratitude, he would throw up, up the job suddenly and depart. To his employers, the reasons he gave were obviously inadequate. They said, confounded fool, as soon as his back was turned, this was their criticism on his exquisite sensibility. And so, so there's something really mysterious about Jim. He's, he's really good. He's very capable. But it just seemed like for, for no reason, but there actually is a reason, uh, but it just seemed like for no reason he would just quit. And, uh, you know, there is this, this cloud of mystery, you know, hanging over him. And uh, if you, uh, in, in this chapter one, remember, this is just one point in time, is, uh, you know, Conrad introduces us to, well, there's this, there's this mystery. And it says on page two, it says, uh, he's like incognito. You know, he's got something to hide. It says, uh, his cognito, which had as many holes as a sieve, was not meant to hide a personality, but a fact. When the fact broke through the incognito, he would leave suddenly the seaport where he happened to be at the time and go to another, generally further east. He kept to seaports because he was a seaman in exile from the sea. Now, that's a great line, and it's beginning to tell us, to reveal to us part of the mystery. There's something has happened to Jim, and uh, uh, that... that uh, some people know, and they spread it around. It's like gossip. It's like gossip gets spread around, and then when it's known at the port, then this fact about him, uh, then he goes on to another port, and he keeps going east. And, of course, uh, uh, this is all leading us to the first big problem in his life, and then, of course, then there, there will be a second one 
that we'll deal with, you know, later in the novel. And so, so uh, uh, yeah, listen to what uh, Conrad says about, you know, how far he moved. It says, thus, in the course of years, he was known successively in Bombay, in Calcutta, in Rangoon, in Penang, in Batavia. And in each of these halting places was, was just Jim, the water clerk. Afterwards, uh, when uh, his keen perception of the intolerable drove him away for good from seaports and white men, even to the virgin forest, the malaise of the jungle village, where he had elected to conceal his deplorable faculty, added a word to the monosyllable of his incognito. They called him Tuan Jim, as one might say, Lord Jim. So, so I think I, I failed to read it to you up uh, a little bit further up, but they know that Jim has another name. Jim is not his name. He's hiding his real name. And, uh, um, you know, eventually he, keep, he moves into the malaise of the jungle village, moves further on into the islands, and, uh, you know, he begins like a new life in that way. So he, he will no longer be a water clerk. Now he goes on to give us a little more detail uh, about him. Uh, gives a little bit of family background. It says, originally he came from a parsonage. Many commanders of fine merchant ships come from these abodes of piety and peace. Jim's father possessed such certain knowledge of the unknowable, meaning of God, as made for the righteousness of people in cottages without disturbing the ease of mind of those whom an unerring providence enables to live in mansions. So, um, you know, so... You know, he came from this this uh, religious family. He also has four other brothers. We're told here. There's a little bit of a, a history about the rectory, and the church, and I don't. Uh, we don't need to go into that in in this discussion. But one of the things that it does say there, it says, uh, he said the living had belonged to the family for generations, but Jim was one of five sons. And when after a course of light holiday literature, his vocation for the sea had declared itself, and he was sent at once to a training ship for officers of the mercantile marine. And so, so here he came from a religious family, and it's, it indicates to me a little bit that his other brothers kind of followed in their father's footsteps, but he did not. And so he did not want to, um, to have... Um, you know, the religious life or the life of a parson or a minister. Now, it's interesting. It's still in this chapter now, in chapter 1. We come to the second point in time, and that's when he does start training to be a shipman or to, you know, to, uh, you know, lead, um, you know, as the, you know, like a chief mate of a ship. And uh, it, it Conrad talks a little about about his beginning. He says he learned there a little trigonometry and how to cross topgallant yards. He was generally liked. He had third place in navigation and pulled stroke in the first cutter. Having a steady head with an excellent physique, he was a very smart aloft. His station was in the foretop, and often from there he looked down with the contempt of a man destined to shine in the midst of dangers at the peaceful multitude of roofs cut in two by the brown tide of the stream, while scattered on the outskirts of the surrounding plain of the factory chimneys rose perpendicular against a grimy sky, each slender like a pencil, belching out smoke like a volcano. He could see the big ships departing, the broad-beam ferries constantly on the move, 
the little boats floating far below his feet, with the hazy splendor of the sea in the distance and the hope of a stirring life in the world of adventure. So one of the things we know about, um, you know, Jim, and again, we don't know his real name, he really is enthralled with adventure. He really wants to have adventure on the sea. He really, he, he's kind of like a romantic that way. And, uh, you know, so, so he's in training and he's just imagining, you know, all these adventures he's going to have on the sea. Now, I'm going to skip through the rest of that, that chapter. And again, uh, uh, the way Conrad breaks this up, now he does, he does give a lot of, I think, uh, poetic kind of descriptions. And he does talk about heroism. And he does talk about, um, you know, some of the things. Uh, I, I guess maybe I could mention briefly that in his training, there was a training situation where Jim just didn't act fast enough, and someone younger and less uh, qualified than he is got in there and got all the got all the honor and the glory, and that really discouraged him. And so you can see that that uh, that Jim really has kind of a pretty big idea about himself. Now, with chapter two, um, uh, we're still, let's say, we come to the point where we're at the end of his training, and uh, essentially we find out that, that Jim is promoted to chief mate, um, and he's got a promising career, but then something, something really kind of terrible happens to him. And so, so here, immediately, by the time you get to chapter two, you're already in a different time period. And so that's what's really... I think what throws people a lot when they read this book, that, that it's going to go back and forth in time. And uh, even once the inquiry gets going on, we're going to find out that Marlowe kind of takes over, and he's going to really go back and forth to find out you know, all this truth about uh, you know, Jim. And so uh, uh, this is chapter two. This would be page six if you're, if you're uh, following the Signet Classic, and hopefully you bought that one. And so, so I'll just start at the very top of this page. It says, uh, After two years of training, he went to sea, and entering the regions so well known to his imagination, found them strangely barren of adventure. He made many voyages. He knew the magic monotony of existence between sky and water, and he had to bear the criticism of men, the exactions of the sea, and the prosaic severity of the daily task that give bread but whose only reward is the perfect love of the work. The reward eluded him. And so, so all this, you know, adventure that he wanted, all this, you know, uh, you know uh, his life was prosaic, or in other words, it lacked, you know, poetic beauty. In other words, you know, the, the, uh, let's say the adventure of like an Iliad or the Odyssey did not come about for, for Jim. And so, Sarah, this is what he dreamed of, his imagination. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't there. And he's actually, you know, he, he finally becomes a chief mate. He gets promoted. He's got a promising career because he's very capable, but he's bored to tears. <laughs> you know, he, this is not what he expected. And I think that happens to, a, you know, to a, to a lot of people. Uh, but but notice the description of him. Now, this is after he kind of grows up a little bit. It says, He was gentlemanly, steady, tractable, with a thorough knowledge of his duties, and in time, when yet very young, 
he became chief mate of a fine ship without ever having been tested by those events of the sea that show in the light of day the inner worth of a man, the edge of his temper, the fiber of his stuff, that reveal the quality of his resistance and the secret truth of his pretenses, not only to others, but to himself. And so, so this is typical, I think, Conrad is, you know, Conrad, I think, uh, is himself just taken up with youth and how exciting youth is and how, how much vitality and how much life there is when you're, uh, you know, a youth and you just test yourself and you're out there working hard. And, uh, you know, so, so that's where he's at here with Jim and Jim, (laughs) Jim is bored, bored to tears because he's not getting the adventure. All right. It says, uh, on top of page seven, I think it's really interesting, um, of this, this is again chapter two. Remember, we're in the point of time too. Is I feel like um, Conrad gives us a little bit of a prophecy about Jim and what's going to go on. It says once only in all that time he had again the glimpse of the earnestness of the anger of the sea. The truth is not so often made apparent as people might think. There are many shades in the danger of adventures and gales. And it is only now and then that there appears on the face of facts a sinister violence of intention, that indefinable something which forces it upon the mind and the heart of a man, that this complication of accidents or these elemental furies are coming at him with a purpose of malice, with a strength beyond control, with an unbridled cruelty that means to tear out of him his hope, his fear, the pain of his fatigue, and his longing for rest, which means to smash, to destroy, to annihilate all he has seen, known, loved, enjoyed, or hated. And that is priceless and necessary. The sunshine, the memories, the future, which means to sweep the whole precious world utterly away from his sight by the simple and appalling act of taking his life. Now, that's a long paragraph. And... uh, I don't know how many sentences it is. I think, to be honest, that's probably only two sentences. And so so that's where people get aggravated at Conrad. But I think it what you know, this is Conrad's view of life. And remember, I mean he was uh he was brought up in, in Poland, his parents were revolutionaries and uh, you know, they were they were sent to you know, the gulags. He was there with them. And, uh, you know, he, he, he had a hard life. And so he's, he's incorporating that in. Now, the very next paragraph, it shows that here Jim is, is really having a, great, you know, a good career, and then he gets injured um, on a ship, and it, it really causes him to be disabled. That's the second paragraph on page uh, 7. It says, Jim, disabled by a falling spar at the beginning of a week of which his Scottish captain used to say afterwards, man, it's a perfect miracle to me how she lived through it. <laughs> and so so his his big job as chief mate was on a ship and then the ship started to fall apart. And, uh, you know, he, he got injured. It says, uh, uh, he spent many days stretched on his back, dazed, battered, hopeless, and tormented, as if at the bottom of an abyss of unrest. He did not care what the end would be, and in his lucid moments overvalued his indifference. The danger when not seen has the imperfect vagueness of human thought. The fear grows shadowy, and imagination, the enemy of men, the father of all terrors, 
unstimulated sinks to the rest in the dullness of exhausted emotion. So I think all of us have had those emotions, but I've never been able to say it as clearly as Conrad. <laughs> you know, he says it pretty clearly there, what was going on with Jim. So anyway, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of sad. The next paragraph down said, His lameness, however, persisted, and when the ship arrived at an eastern port, he had to go to the hospital. His recovery was slow, and he was left behind. So if you can imagine, if, if, you, know, if you spent all of your life you know, uh, maybe not all of your life, but maybe your your young years wanting to be, you know, a, a, a hero, you know, you know, sailing ships and commanding ships, and now he's injured and left behind, and he's really, really kind of, uh, really handicapped. He said, uh, this goes on to talk about his, his time in the hospital. He says, there, there were only two other patients in the white men's ward, the pursuer of a gunboat who had broken his leg falling down a hatchway, and a kind of railway conductor from a neighbor, neighboring province, afflicted by some mysterious tropical disease, who held the doctor for, well, he uses an expletive there, which we won't repeat on the radio, and indulged in secret debaucheries of patient, of pet medicine which his Tamil servant used to smuggle in with unweary devotion. So, so the, the other contractor was a drug addict, and, uh, you know, his uh, servant was bringing him drugs while he was in the hospital. He says, they told each other the story of their lives, played cards a little, or a yawning and in, uh, or yawning and in pajamas, lounged through the day in easy chairs without saying a word. And so, so uh, can you imagine here the, uh, the sea adventurer is now, you know, stuck in a hospital, um, you know, uh, with two guys that... Um, probably don't have as much, uh, let's say, brilliance or maybe have the, the aggressiveness that he has. Yeah, Conrad gives a great description of the hospital. Uh, and again, I, I don't want to take the time to do that today because we're already running out of time. So, uh, But eventually he gets better. And then it says, directly he could walk without a stick. He descended into the town to look for some opportunity to get home. Nothing offered just then, and while waiting, he associated naturally with the men of his calling in the port. These were of two kinds, some very few seen there but seldom, led mysterious lives, and had preserved an undefaced energy with the temper of buccaneers in the eyes of dreamers. So, so he looked for people like himself, and again, remember, he is like the mystery man, and he's, you know, he's hiding some things. That, that he doesn't want people to see. And, uh, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he goes on to say they love short passages, good deck chairs, large native crews, and the distinction of being white. They shuddered at the thought of hard work and led precariously easy lives, always on the verge of dismissal, always on the verge of engagement. Serving Chinamen, Arabs, half-castes would have served the devil himself had he made it easy enough. They talked everlastingly of turns of luck, how so-and-so got charge of a boat on the coast of China. So, so anyway, um, you know, Jim began to, I guess, uh, uh, maybe, uh, you know, get along with some of these guys, and eventually it did help him, and he becomes the chief mate of the Patna. And, of course, this is uh, uh, where the main, one of the main problems is going to come in for him. 
and they go on to talk about uh, you know the patna, and so so this is uh, you know part of that second second uh, point of the story. So now again we're at a different time where now he's now the mate of the patna, and uh, essentially what the the uh, the patna is doing is they're going to be taking let's see eight hundred. Um, I see Islamic pilgrims to Mecca, and so it's it's on this uh, ship. Maybe I'd better read this a little bit. It said the Patna was a local steamer as old as the hills, lean like a greyhound, eaten up with rust, worse than a condemned water tank. This should remind us of the story Youth. It says she was owned by a Chinaman, chartered by an Arab, commanded by a sort of renegade New South Wales German, very anxious to curse publicly his native country but who apparently on the strength of Bismarck's victorious policy brutalized all those he was not afraid of and wore a blood and iron air combined with a purple nose and a red mustache. After she had been painted, meaning the, the Patna, had been painted outside, whitewashed inside, 800 pilgrims more or less were driven on board of her as she lay with steam up alongside a wooden jetty. They, it says they streamed aboard over three gangways. They streamed in urged by faith and the hope of paradise. They streamed in with a continuous tramp and shuffle of bare feet without a word, a murmur, a look back. And when clear of confining rails spread on all sides over the deck, flowed forward and aft, overflowed down the yawning hatchways, filled the inner recesses of the ship like uh, water filling a cistern, like water flowing into crevices and crannies, like waters rising silently even with the rim. He said 800 men and women with a faith and hopes, with affections and memories they had collected there, coming from north and south from the outskirts of the east, after trading the jungle pass, descending the river coast in Praz, and those are little boats where you can either uh, you can uh, sail them from either the front or the back, Anyway, it's it's just a great a great description to see these pilgrims all coming together. Now, one of the one of the things I want to say uh, before we uh, end this program, and it is ending quickly, is that all these points in points in time are leading us to where Jim is going to encounter Marlowe, and so so that is all the time that I have for today's program. And uh, next time, Deborah and I will continue with Jim's uh, first encounter with Marlowe, and that will be in Chapter 4. So you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1, and you can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. Now, I have been working on increasing the activity on Facebook, so you can see some current posts right now. So, until next time, keep reading. been listening to just the best literature on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg streaming online at kpcg.fm and the trumpet.com